This is Hamlet to Hamilton Exploring Verse Drama. I'm your host, Emily C.A. Snyder. You're listening to Season 3, Episode 8, The Metatheatrical Soliloquy, taking a look at Midsummer Night's Dream, Love's Labor's Lost, and our favorite coming back full circle, Hamlet. To be... To be. Or not to be. To be or not to be. That is the question. Hello, friends. Okay, so welcome to the sort of end of the first module of looking at soliloquy. We might do perhaps a summation or a review of vocabulary episode following this. Uh, basically the too long didn't listen version, because uh, I think that might be helpful. We are throwing a lot of ideas at you, and um, and it might not be a bad thing, not so much to quiz you uh, as to quiz us. Anyway, today, since season three is all about soliloquy, we are going to be looking at metatheatrical soliloquy. That is, plays within plays, using soliloquy in plays within plays. And in this case, we're going to be looking, again, we're finishing up our Shakespeare and soliloquy module. Today, we are looking at Love's Labor's Lost, Midsummer Night's Dream, and Hamlet, which brings us back full circle, which is very exciting. Before we go on, a few pieces of housekeeping. Uh, once again, we are back from hiatus. We are recording this in July 2022, and uh, we are trying different microphone setups. So if the audio quality uh, is sort of being played around with, and everyone send Colin Kovark big love, uh, that's the reason why we have moved to new locations. We are trying out different microphone setups to get you the best quality. Also, today's episode is brought to you by our patrons on Patreon. Now, patrons on Patreon do get special episodes, which are called Unhinged Rants. This month, in July 2022, they are getting a rant on the Royal Shakespeare Company's most recent production of Richard III, which I did see and which I did walk out of. <laughs> so if you want to hear that unhinged rant, uh, head on over to patron uh, to patreon.com slash Hamlet to Hamilton. That's patreon.com slash Hamlet to Hamilton. You can sign up at any level and you will get access to the unhinged rants. You will also have the opportunity to sway this podcast and to let us know what you want us to dive into next. To finish up the housekeeping, if you are looking for texts, they are over on hamlettohamilton.com. And uh, just like with everything, we are sprucing that up. So uh, I do apologize right now. I am using the online MIT version of these Shakespeare plays uh, because I did not want to carry around my complete works of Shakespeare with me in my suitcase as I am first traveling to England and still finding a place to stay. Uh, which is a shame. Today I'm really missing that because I had all these different notes in my uh, copy, in my full 
complete works of Shakespeare, and that is sadly back in the U.S. for the moment. So let's get into today's episode, and let's begin, as always, with our definitions. All right, so a reminder that our working definition of soliloquy for this semester (laughs) is a largely uninterrupted speech of length delivered by a single character which is not intended to be overheard by any other character, character being a role which can influence the the play, as opposed to a chorus or a narrator. So a largely uninterrupted speech of length delivered by an isolated character who does not intend to be overheard by any other character in the world of the play. And in the metatheatrical, the characters we are talking about are not the characters on, like, all the characters on stage, um, but for the play within a play, the character... (laughs) You all know what I mean. Um, If someone is pretending to be in a play, then it's this secondary character, the role that they are playing within the play that does not intend to be overheard by any other character that is in the play within a play. Um, In fact, the character who is delivering this soliloquy does intend to be heard by the main characters outside the world of the play within a play, right? Because the character who's soliloquizing is behaving as an actor. But what's interesting then is that this still fits our definition because when the character, such as Pyramus, uh, sorry, (laughs) such as Bottom, who is playing Pyramus, when that character is in the world of the play, they are making the other characters of the play, such as Helena and Hermia, they're making the characters that we've been following who are now watching the play sort of into chorus members, just in the way that when I'm delivering a soliloquy, if I'm talking to people in the audience, I'm sort of treating you like a chorus. You are not going to be able to influence the world of the play that I, Emily, inhabit. So basically, the same rules apply. Um, If I am performing as, I don't know, as Helena, I expect the audience to overhear me, but I don't expect another character to overhear me. Um, If I'm playing bottom, when I'm speaking, I expect uh, the people in the world, like if I'm speaking a soliloquy, I expect the audience to hear me. I may even talk to them directly. I do not expect any other character to be listening to me. Even if Puck is listening, I do not intend to be overheard by any other character. So when Bottom goes into the world of the play within a play, Bottom as Pyramus does not intend for Thisbe or for the lion or, um, well, the wall we're going to talk about is sort of apostrophic, same thing with the moon, but doesn't expect Thisbe, who is the other character who can influence events doesn't expect Thisbe to overhear his Bottomus Pyramus's soliloquy, uh, and yet does expect that Helena, Hermia, Demetrius, Lysander, the king, the queen, etc., will be able to hear him, 
but will not try to influence the play. And yet, of course, that's what Shakespeare then plays with. Okay, so a little bit of history, which I bet you many of you know, and which uh, our, our new highly scholarly early modern experts will no doubt have quite a lot to say. And welcome new listeners. We are so happy to have you. But so Elizabethan drama, early modern drama, which is what Shakespeare is writing in and what, of course, he is lampooning in his own plays within a plays is a very different theatrical experience from what we go to. So it was interesting, actually. I was at the Dirty Duck the other night, working actually on a new verse play. And about nine o'clock, in come a bunch of Australians, lovely, lovely people, an entire party of them. And um, I can't help but think of my dear friend in New York City, Laura Hill. Hello, Laura, if you're listening who is Australian herself and who in fact told me that it is, uh, that you go into a bar and you have a party. And so therefore, um, very confused to go into a bar as an Australian and not have people go, Hey, and talk back to you. Um, so in comes this lovely party of Australians at nine o'clock and they're saying to everyone, Oh, you know, we just walked out of that Richard the third at the RSC. And so, we had a, a lovely talk. And one of the things that one of the the people in that party were saying is, uh, you know, you go into a Shakespeare play and you have to be so quiet. You have to be respectful. It's almost like being in church. In fact, I've I've heard that sentiment from a few people, natives of Stratford even, who you would think would be more comfortable because this is kind of their local theater is the Royal Shakespeare Company. I mean, it's literally like one of the build, biggest buildings in uh, in the city, and it's right there as soon as you cross over the Avon. Um, it, you would think that they'd be a little bit more casual, um, but we go into a Shakespeare play and we're like, ah, Shakespeare, I must sit here and I must be quiet. But that is not at all the Elizabethan stage. If you've been to the Globe, you know that um, the stage is in a thrust. So it's more than three quarters because the audience is seated almost entirely around. And there is a box above the stage where you could turn around and also address um, people who do sit up there, which is really kind of cool. And if you were to go, for example, to the Blackfriars Theater at the American Shakespeare Center, which is a replica of Shakespeare's indoor theater. The Globe is an outdoor theater. Blackfires is an indoor theater. It is um, similarly a thrust, a more proper thrust. So you've got audience on the sides and audience in the front, and you've got an upper gallery doing the same. But you also have stools on the stage, and you can buy the seats to, to be on the stage with the actors. And so since... The audience is so close because, as you probably know, in the Globe, there were also the groundlings, and you could still be a groundling at the Globe. You pay considerably less, and you need to be able to stand up for like three and a half hours, uh, which for someone like me who's got no knees, 
<laughs> got terrible knees, uh, is torture. And I will never, ever, 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 ever in my life be a groundling. But if you have the stamina, you can still be a groundling. That is, you sort of stand in the pit of the globe. And the stage is kind of at eye height, depending on your height. And there's a lot of interaction. The other thing, too, in both theaters is that the lights stay on, which is to say the audience is under no illusion that they aren't really there. There isn't an audience sits in darkness and the actors are in light. That is a much later creation. Um, I have to look it up, but I believe it was a Prussian or Austrian um, king who just loved theater (laughs) and didn't want people to interrupt it. And so he created sort of footlights and lights on the stage and quiet in the audience and very be quiet in the audience. But you think about the Elizabethan stage, it would have been more raucous. People are going through and selling oranges. So like as, as Burbage has tried to go to be or not to be, you've got people going, hey, you want an orange then? Yeah, I do. Pass us an orange. Um, Patty Lapone would have hated. <laughs> would have hated. She would have gone crazy in Elizabethan theater. And this makes sense because Elizabethan theater is directly from the medieval theater, where, uh, as far as I understand, there were sort of two ways that it would go. One is the pageant wagon, which did continue through the Elizabethan era, certainly, which is literally you're going from town to town in your wagon. Um, It's a smaller troop of actors, and um, it's a tour. Guys, it's a tour. Like, if you've ever been an actor and gone on tour... The difference is you're in a car or in a very big van, (laughs) but it's the same thing. Um, You go to the new city, probably the actors help set everything up. You put up maybe a, a, a backdrop of some ilk just so that you can hide things behind and have exits and entrances. Um, But it's uh, the thing is that then people would just sort of come and sit. I don't know if you would set up benches or whatnot, maybe not. Um, and you'd perform. But again, it's all in daylight and it's kind of ad hoc. And so if you've ever been to like a Renaissance fair where people are doing shows, again, sort of on these various small stages and outdoors, there's a there's a feeling like you should talk back to the actors. There just is. Um, so there were the wagons, but also then there was the Corpus Christi plays, which were sponsored by the guilds. And for these, again, you'd have outdoor stages that would be constructed specifically for whatever this guild was uh, sponsoring, whatever play it was, Uh, usually drawn from the Bible or from the life of a saint or a you better not do any wrong, every man type thing. And uh, these might have some fairly spectacular effects. Um, You know, guilds would try to show each other up, but again, it was temporary And again, it was outdoors. And again, it was sort of this festival feeling where you'd wander through the town. There might be various shows on. uh, And again, those orange sellers are around. So, you know, the only difference is whoever the actor is, is trying to speak in rhyming couplets and being like, God has sent me down to thee and thou must listen unto me. And again, you've got, hey, 
I want some oranges over here. Think more of like a baseball game. Hot dogs, who, hot dogs, who wants a hot dog? <laughs> right? And someone is trying to, to talk about, and you should be moral. Um, for if not, Satan hath your soul begot. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, they were kind of rough rhymes. We could talk about that another time. Bum, bum, bum. Uh, anyway, so... Which is to say that when Shakespeare is writing his metatheatrical plays, when he's writing his plays within a plays, that's why he has the main characters of the main play, not the play within a play, talking. Um, I want to relay one fat last final story, which I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's a, I guess, early modern legend um, or if I read it somewhere. Uh, again, I'm so sorry, Difficult, more difficult to be scholarly on this side of the pond without my full library with me yet. But the story goes that since the nobility frequently be the ones who would buy the stools on the stage, and they're treating the show that they're watching rather like their own TV, uh, rather than live actors who can hear you in the audience, <laughs> um, there was one guy, there was one noble guy who was talking across the stage to his friend, like shouting across, being like, Oh, hello, Duke of Bunbridge. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm doing quite well. How are you, Earl of Salisbury? Oh, I'm fine. Oh, did you hear about the Duchess of Schmirgelfump? Uh, she's German. <laughs> and back and forth. I love what you're wearing, darling. Oh, thank you. I got it at so-and-so, Taylor. While again, people are trying to be up. They're like, oh, my love, my wife. <laughs> Doing the end of Romeo and Juliet or something. And um, apparently, so the story goes, this dude was tired of yelling across the stage to his friend. So he got up and just walked across the stage to like go talk to his friend better. <laughs> and the actor whoever it was, was just so fed up with this that apparently he punched the dude in the middle of the play. The guy's walking by going, now tell me, where did you get your heels? <laughs> and the actor just decked him and laid him out flat. And uh, the actor was arrested. <laughs> the actor was arrested for doing this. We also know that, of course, among the groundlings, for example, Great place for pickpockets to be. I mean, they got to pick a pocket or two. But if a pickpocket was caught, um, there are columns in the very front of the Globe Theater, for example. If you were caught as a pickpocket, even during the show, the guards or whomever would drag you onto the stage and tie you to one of the columns and leave you up there and Presumably, people could throw the oranges at them, <laughs> something like that. So can you imagine, you know, some pickpocket be like, hey, get me down from here. And uh, people going, boo, and throwing oranges. And again, like Burbage going, it is the cause. It is the cause, my soul. And trying to, like, duck oranges. Like, mayhem, guys. Mayhem. Mayhem is what Shakespeare was contending with. In fact, one last thing. Um, as far as I understand the development of the stage and a part of why it's in the thrust is because a sort of middle point where people were starting to put on plays in um, basically the tavern gardens. And so, of course, you'd be surrounded by a bunch of people <laughs> 
who are getting very happily drunk. And again, you're yelling out your play and being like, you know, play, playboy, play, thy mother plays and I play too. And, um, and, and again, you're just, you're trying to be heard over people who are going to be yelling back at you. Um, which in some ways, I, I like, I kind of wish that could have happened for this Richard III, but we were all in darkness. And even though it was a thrust stage, and again, the Richard was, was pretty good. You can listen to the unhinged rant. Um, the Richard himself was pretty good and would look and talk to us. Uh, but he was kind of the only one. <laughs> and, and you very much felt that you weren't supposed to talk back. And if you remember from our villain soliloquy one, Richard doesn't necessarily invite conversation because he is telling you what he did uh, rather than being like Hamlet and saying, am I a coward? <laughs> Things like that. Okay, let's take a super quick break. And then when we come back, let's start with the easiest of all of these, which is Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, I should say, as with this entire Shakespeare soliloquy module, I am presuming you have a really good grasp on the plays that I'm talking about. If you don't, I highly suggest reading or listening or watching versions of this play. Um, and it, however you consume media is fine. Or hey, go and, and find, if you could find a live theater version, definitely go there and uh, I guess bring an orange. But, you know, please don't hit Burbage. All right, see you on the other side of this break. It's time for an unhinged rant. <gasps> or is it? Unhinged rants are when myself, Emily C.A. Snyder, just goes off on whatever it is that I am researching for you. And it is largely biased. It is very unscholarly. It is an extreme rant. It has a lot of profanity and it's a lot of fun. The first two unhinged rants are available for everyone on the main feed. They're about T.S. Eliot and Lord Byron. You can give them a listen. All the remaining unhinged rants, which will come out monthly, are only for our patrons on Patreon. So if you would like to hear some unhinged rants, things that are perhaps a little bit less measured and, and uh, luxury, then head on over to patreon.com slash Hamlet to Hamilton, and you'll get to hear all of the fire, fire flames from the side of my face. Unhinged rants! All right, welcome back. So we're going to be looking at Midsummer Night's Dream. This is Act 5, Scene 1, The Play Within a Play. This is The Play Within a Play of Pyramus and Thisbe. And, uh, you, you know, I really feel that Midsummer's is one of Shakespeare's just best plays. It is so tightly plotted. Um, everyone is so distinct the lines are good, the jokes hold up, the scenarios are fantastic. The hardest scene to direct is the one where the four lovers are yelling at each other just because um, you need to balance physical comedy with text. If you have too much of one, you lose the other. Um, anyway, so that's, that's an exciting director's challenge. And then when you get to the play within a play, even if you're working with 
really new actors, even if you're working with non-Shakespeareans, um, there's something about Pyramus and Thisbe that just works, that is practically actor-proof. The cool thing, too, if you're an educator, is I, w- I would highly suggest Pyramus and Thisbe, and you could take out everyone's lines in between. You could just make it into a play that is being performed to the actual audience. Um, I've actually been in a version of that where I was playing Quince, and um, I have directed or facilitated about five other versions. I've given Pyramus and Thisbe to student directors and helped them, um, you know, figure out ways to, to again, do physical comedy and whatnot. And it it really works great. It, it just really works well. And if you're watching versions, it's neat because you could pick up all these different bits that different actors choose to do. Um, it, it's just fantastic. Like, let, let's, let's just be honest. This is such a solid piece of writing. And what's really kind of lovely for all my writers out there is this is fairly early Shakespeare. And it's so nice to see Shakespeare really hitting his stride. Um, I know Midsummers may feel incredibly overdone to you. Um, I've seen a ton of Midsummers actually, but I, with the exception of one time, maybe twice, maybe twice, yeah, two versions that I saw that essentially took the play too seriously. Um, and even so, those were interesting. Uh, one of which is the movie version from like the early 2000s, late 90s, with Michelle Pfeiffer and uh, Kevin Klein. Um, that version's interesting. Um, but even so, their play with it play is fan frigatastic. Um, yeah, so I would watch any version. I feel like you get something out of it regardless. Uh, that said, I have not fully seen the version that was very celebrated from National Theatre Live, um, where they did a bunch of gender swapping. To be honest, again, they sort of took it, it looks like they were taking it too seriously and kind of putting a lot of concept on it. And um, and then honestly, I got very angry because at the play within a play, or rather with the rude mechanicals, um, the only actor of size who was a Black English actress, she was fantastic. They made her play Lion, that is snug, um, one of the characters with the fewest lines. She was lovely. She was great. But I got so angry at that casting because why wasn't she Helena? Why wasn't she Titania? Like, okay, she was there, she was cast, yay representation, but she was capable of so much more and she didn't even get to play Quince um, or gender bending didn't get to play Pyramus slash bottom. Like, I don't know. I get very upset at that. And like I said, the beginning part was very much like Handmaid's Tale. And um, actually, I think it's even in two parts. Again, like I do love a long I do. I don't mind sitting for three to four hours at a verse play, if it's good. <laughs> if it's labored, if you've put too much on it, or if you like did nothing, like completely nothing with it, and just abandoned the characters on the stage, then it's interminable. Then uh, I'm going down with all the Aussies, and we're going to have a drink. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. Um, but which is to say, this is just a great piece of writing. 
the setup, if you remember, is Hippolyta and Theseus and everybody are now getting married or presumably have just gotten married. They're at the reception and they're like, we should watch something. Um, they get a list of different pieces they could watch and they decide to go with Pyramus. Um, even though they're told this is absolutely terrible, don't see it. Um, and Thesis is like, hey, let's let's see it anyway. Um, and he sort of gives this thing of like, oh, we'll, <laughs> because we'll be so kind in our largesse that we'll make it better than it is. Okay. We also, through this, get some sense of what early modern plays were like, but particularly what Shakespeare thought of medieval plays, because this is a send-up, particularly, of medieval plays. What you'll notice is that there is rhyming, which actually the majority, like large chunks of Midsummer's, have rhyming, just as actually large chunks of Romeo and Juliet have rhyming, um, which I personally contend is probably a holdover from, again, the all these medieval plays, which are still playing, and even plays that are being written contemporaneous with Shakespeare will still have a lot of rhyming. Even up through John Dryden, uh, who's in the 1600s, early 1700s, um, he was known for rhyming. And as you remember, we heard all the burlesques from like the 17-1800s, many of which rhymed. Um, you could tell I'm about to do my PhD on rhyming. <laughs> all for you. All for, so you guys eventually get a season on the use of rhyme and verse. Um, but for Shakespeare, I think he's kicking back to the previous generations of playwrights. In the same way, again, listen to season two, in the same way, so many of you listeners out there, who are you trying to sound like? Hmm? What age are you trying to hearken back to? Yeah, thought so. Okay, so the prologue, who's played by Quince, begins. If we offend, it is with our goodwill, uh, that you should think we come not to offend, but with goodwill. To show our simple skill, that is the true beginning of our end. Consider then, we come but in despite, we do not come, as minding to content you. Our true intent is, all for your delight, we are not here. <laughs> that you should here repent you, the actors are at hand, and by their shows, you shall know all that you are like to know. Um, I actually forgot this was in rhyme. Again, I've performed Quince a couple times, and, uh, What's cool, actually, about this rhyme, and which shows that Shakespeare, I think, is is starting to play with form, is that while he is cutting on the rhyme, and by the way, guys, I've been thinking about line endings more. My gosh, I love this podcast. I feel like everything here challenges me, and I love it. I've been thinking about line endings more, and that there are different ways to cut on the ending. Some are more effective, some are less effective. In this case, Shakespeare's cutting on the rhyme, but the sh the full schwoomph tends to go over. He's tending to enjam quite a few of these end rhymes. Um, I could, if you want, really look at the schwoomph and ouvriel and lined endings of just this prologue, because even as I was re-performing, I've been performing it more than I've been rereading it. 
right? I've been directing it more than I've been putting my head. I've got this memorized. Guys, I've got this memorized. Um, Probably because it's in rhyme. (laughs) But um, so I haven't looked at the text in a while. And as I'm looking at it, I'm like, ah, good job. Good job. It's even in rhyming quatrains, which is kind of cool. But the interesting thing, of course, is that these plays used to start with a prologue. Keep that in mind. We're going to see this in the other metatheatrical plays. And keep in mind, is this a soliloquy? Da 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 da. Final answer? No, it's not. No. Because again, this person is behaving like a prologue. Remember, we talked about three different types of roles. Um, and again, we might add a fourth with the fool, but we have a narrative role a narrator type role, which could be a prologue, for example, in this case, someone who is not acting in the world of the play. They don't have like a character or even a choral role in the play. They are in the play, but they're capable of commenting on the play. And the big difference, of course, is they do intend to be overheard by whomever, but particularly by the audience. They are addressing the audience. And in many ways, the prologue or narrator is more in the world of the audience than they are in the world of the play, which again is why the use of the narrator, especially in Into the Woods by Stephen Sondheim, is chef's kiss. So Quince here is behaving as the prologue, as the narrator. The other two types of character are choral, which I would suggest is in the world of the play, reacts to what's happening, but does not and cannot, on their own activity, change any part of the play. And now that I say that, I think that's my problem with most female characters as they're written. They're a chorus. Oh my stars. Guys, that will be the next unhinged rant. Light bulb. Cool. Anyway, um, chorus is in the play, reacts, doesn't change anything about the play. And then a character is someone who can actually change the play. And if you remember, a soliloquy is a largely uninterrupted speech of length delivered by an isolated character who does not intend to be overheard by any other character in the world of the play. Um, So yes, this is a completely uninterrupted speech of length delivered by a character, but they're not... The prologue isn't isolated, right? They're alone on the stage within the world of the play. But again, they're really in the world of the audience, who in this case are the characters of the play, but also ourselves. Um, And they intend to be overheard, in this case particularly, by the other characters (laughs) in the world of a play. It's not a monologue, though. This is an address. A monologue is, again, character to character trying to change the other character. It's specifically directed towards another character. An address is, again, treating everyone like they are chorus. Okay, let's go on. Uh, So the prologue, that's Quince exits. Theseus and Lysander and Hippolyta have some snarky stuff to say to each other. But in some ways, you could feel that that's covering up a scene change, right? The prologue is going off on are going to come the rest of the cast. But Quince continues as the prologue. 
And this is going to remain in quatrains, A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D type thing. All right, here we go. So the entire cast of this metatheatrical play is now on stage. And Quince continues as a narrator, not a soliloquy, as a narrator, saying, gentles, meaning talking to all the characters on stage, but also us as chorus, right? Hence, this is an address. Gentles, perchance you wonder at the show, but wonder on till truth make all things plain. This man is Pyramus, if you would know. This beauteous lady, Thisbe, is certain. This man with lime and rough cast doth present wall, that vile wall which did these lovers sunder, and through walls chink, poor souls, they are content to whisper, at the which let no man wonder. Uh, This man, with lantern, dog, and bush of thorn, presenteth moonshine, for, if you will know, by moonshine did these lovers think no scorn to meet at Ninus's tomb, there, there to woo. This grisly beast, which Lion, height by name, the trusty Thisbe coming first by night, did scare away, or rather did affright, and as she fled, her mantle she did fall, which lion vile with bloody mouth did stain. Anon comes Pyramus, sweet youth and tall, and finds his trusty Thisbe's mantle slain, whereat, with blade, with bloody, blameful blade, he bravely broached his boiling bloody breast, and Thisbe tarrying in a mulberry shade, his dagger drew and died. For all the rest, let lion, moonshine, wall, and lovers twain at large discourse while here they do remain. Now, it is believed that Midsummer's was written possibly concurrently or perhaps immediately after Romeo and Juliet. Um, I love this idea because I love the idea that he's doing Romeo and Juliet and then he does it again, but he does the funny version, right? It's like, no, let's take a funny picture. Uh, It's just, it's great. But think about the prologue. Again, the narrative, it's not a soliloquy. The prologue of of Romeo and Juliet. They tell us the story. (laughs) This is what's going to happen. And again, think about the Elizabethan stage. I love the idea Quince even trying to maybe get people to come to the play, right? This is why you might have a prologue going, hey guys, guys, this is what's going to happen. Bloody death, come on and show up. There are lions and things. Um, But also presuming that the audience is going, so did you hear about Lady Harbury? Um, while, While the play is going on, you're trying to be like, this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen. Um, gosh, I, I want to go and just pull this apart too because, oh, it, his, it's so fun. I, I, um, I've done a couple medieval and early modern rhyming plays now, and they're all they're so difficult to speak. And when you speak Shakespeare, like, it's just so easy. <laughs> it's just so easy. The words go where you hope the words would go. Um, Anyway, so off goes the chorus. And again, Theseus and Demetrius have a moment to get in two lines. They're not interrupting yet. It's it's like when law and order fades out for a second and then fades back in and you turn to whoever you're watching it with and you're like, oh, I think Billy Bob Thornton did it because why else is Billy Bob Thornton in law and order? Okay. Then in comes Snout as well. Let's listen to this speech. Snout, as Wall says, 
In this same interlude it doth befall, that I, one snout by name, present a wall, and such a wall as I would have you think, that had in it a crannied hole or chink, through which the lovers, Pyramus and Thisbe, did whisper often, very secretly, This loam, this rough cast, and this stone doth show, that I am that same wall, the truth is so. And this the cranny is, right? And sinister, through which the fearful lovers are to whisper. Now, then Theseus, Demetrius, Theseus, again, get in a few lines as in comes bottom. Before we do that, let's take a look at the wall. This is not a soliloquy either. It's not even, it's not a villain's soliloquy. Um, it's still narrative bordering on chorus, right? This is who I am. Now, why is this not like Richard III? Um, well, because Snout is not behaving like a character. Uh, they're saying, I am an inanimate object, and uh, I want you to believe I'm an inanimate object. And if you weren't sure, then you watch the rest of the play, and Wall has, again, has no active movement uh, or change on the events of the play. Um, so Snout, as well, is still behaving as, as a chorus or as with narration, not as a character saying, you know, oh my gosh, I just got this woman to love me. Mm, What should I do now? (laughs) Right? Okay. So uh, in comes bottom. And now this is where we're going to get a metatheatrical soliloquy. Let's listen to it and let's figure out why bottom's speech is a soliloquy and the other two were not. So this is Bottom playing Pyramus. Bottom says, Oh, grim-looked knight, oh, knight with hue so black, oh, knight, whichever art when day is not, oh, knight, oh, knight, alack, 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 I fear my Thisbe's promise is forgot, and thou... Oh, wall, oh, sweet, oh, lovely wall, that stands between her father's ground and mine. Thou, wall, oh, wall, oh, sweet and lovely wall, show me thy chink to blink through with mine eye. Thank, courteous wall, Jove shield thee well for this. But what see I? No thisbe do I see. Oh, wicked wall, through whom I see no bliss. Cursed be thy stones for thus deceiving me. We're going to go on. Then Theseus interjects. It's not during a scene change. Just bottom took a breath. And Theseus says, the wall me thinks being sensible should curse again. Bottom hears this, ceases to be Pyramus, becomes bottom and says, no, in truth, sir, he should not. Deceiving me is Thisbe's cue. She is to enter now. And I am to spy her through the wall. You shall see it will fall pat as I told you. Yonder she comes. Okay, so... Bottom, this is not the same as a cut soliloquy. Bottom, this is not the same as a dissociative soliloquy. What we have on stage is absolutely world A and world B. Parallel, but it's not parallel worlds. World A is the world of the play that we are watching. World B is a world that everyone in world A is in on it that world B exists. It's more... You've got World A and like World A Mark II or World A and 
world junior. <laughs> right? And the audience is expected to remain in both worlds simultaneously. We are within the world of of world A, which is the play that we've been watching, and we are also there with now their you know what I'm going to call it their kangaroo world. <laughs> their little pocket dimension that they are letting us see. So this is not the same as a disassociated or as Shakespeare would call it, a mad soliloquy. And we are anchored in both worlds. Whereas with a dissociative soliloquy, traditionally, while the character who is disassociating, again, or quote unquote mad, is kind of in their own world, um, Typically, the audience is anchored in world A. We're just seeing it from the point of view of people who are not living through whatever the person soliloquizing in a dissociative way is. This is not dissociation. The audience is anchored in both worlds, in both world A and the kangaroo world, the pocket dimension. So think about Mackers with the cut soliloquy where he's in the scene and then he kind of turns to us and he goes, true two, sir, two truths are told, which is, you should not say fast. Um, so he's cut away from the scene, but this isn't dissociative. Everyone is still in the same world. They're all in still in world A. It's just more like we've gone into his brain and the way we the convention that we use on stage is that he sort of cuts and turns to us as though there were a camera uh, editing trick. So this is not a cut soliloquy because it isn't Pyramus turning to Theseus. Its bottom ceases to be Pyramus. He ceases to pretend to be in the kangaroo world and instead talks to Theseus in world A in 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 grown-up kangaroo world. Uh, and so he's switching that way. But again, he can juggle that because we all know that we're actually in world A, right? And that this is just a pocket dimension. This is just a kangaroo world. But again, what makes this a soliloquy? Well, in some ways, what uh, this is, <laughs> in many ways, actually, this is absolutely, again, just like Macker's, an apostrophic soliloquy. What is an apostrophic or apostrophe soliloquy? It doesn't mean air quotes, right? It doesn't mean quotations. It means in the poetical sense that you are talking to an inanimate object and anthropomorphizing them, or in your brain, you're thinking of someone and having an argument with them, even though they aren't really there. Um, you're addressing something as though... They were there, but they're not there. That's an apostrophe. So look at this. O grim look night, O night with hues so black, so on. O wall, O sweet, O lovely wall, thou wall, O wall, O sweet and lovely wall. Show me thy chink to blink through with mine eye. So here we go again. The wall is not saying, ah, let me hold up my my chink. Usually done with, um, someone puts their fingers together and sort of like a spyglass. Um, or an okay sign or something like that. Oh, oh that's a little, little fraught at the moment in 2022. Anyway, um, they are not acting on, Wall is not acting on their own volition. 
they are acting as chorus. Chorus being helpful to the characters um, and in the world of the characters, but not active in and of themselves. Once again, unhinged ran apparently coming your way. Um, so we see an apostrophic soliloquy. Again, wow, wow. I, revisiting this play, I'm like, this is just so good. This is definitely going to my dissertation um, because Shakespeare's doing just such a great job making fun of the previous generation. It's interesting too, just thinking about all of you playwrights out there and how all of us, almost all of us, if it, it, the choice is, do you sound like Shakespeare or don't you, right? That that seems to be step one of most contemporary verse dramatists, but even verse dramatists in the 19th century, Byron and so on. Um, and if you're trying to sound like Shakespeare, you you tend to be like really serious about it. You don't make fun of it as much. Um, I mean, not for an entire play at any rate. Uh, not that I've seen. And actually, I would suggest that you listen to New Arthur, New Millennium, um, because the first half hour of that one, first 45 minutes, um, is all about this. So give that a listen. Okay. The other thing that makes this a soliloquy, I think, well, let's take a look at our definition. Um, a largely uninterrupted speech of length, tick, delivered by an isolated character, tick, because chorus doesn't count as character on stage, who does not intend to be overheard by another character in the world of the play. Yep, that hits all of it. And it also touches a little bit on that classic soliloquy, or even think about Richard III again, Iago, the reason why it's not narrative and prologue is because they still make it incredibly personal. Whereas think about Snout, it's not really personal to the role of wall. What is it like to be a wall? <laughs> it's not coming from personal character experience. Whereas Bottom is feeling things in this speech. So something we might need to add to a soliloquy is that in the soliloquy, the character optimally is also going to feel things. I think the reason why I didn't put it in is just because I do think you can have a soliloquy that's just ineffectively written. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Where the character, where it's not specific to the character. I think we've seen that a lot. I think you see it a lot in early modern plays and in, in a lot of verse plays where like, it's just not personal to the character. Anyway, Thisbe enters. And Thisbe has, oh, wall, full often hast thou heard my moans for pot. <clears throat> Let me actually do it higher, just like, <laughs> like they tell flute as Thisbe to do. Oh, wall, full often hast thou heard my moans for parting my fair Pyramus and me. My cherry lips have often kissed thy stones, thy stones with lime and hair knit up in thee. Um, Once again, okay, so flute as the female Thisbe has four lines for their soliloquy. And that's that probably counts as a soliloquy, right? And as an apostrophic soliloquy, it's not a lengthy speech, it's uninterrupted. And Thisbe doesn't intend to be overheard by any of the character, but ah, oh, lo and behold, we have an example where a soliloquy is overheard. 
bottom, as Pyramus says, I see a voice. Now, actually, he was British, wasn't he? I see a voice. Now will I to the chink to spy and I can hear my Thisbe's face. Thisbe? So those two lines I would call an aside, not a soliloquy. Um, I have to think more about why. Give me your thoughts as to why. Okay. Then they actually speak to each other. It is in rhyme. They're trading lines. So technically that's Stigamithia. And then they leave and Snout sort of has the end of their speech, essentially an epilogue to their part. Snout says, thus have I wall, my part discharged so, and being done, thus wall away doth go. And wall exits. And everyone talks to each other. Okay. Um, in this play, we're going to see a lot of people talking to each other. The best one is probably Moonshine because everyone's just sort of relentlessly um, talking at Moonshine. Let's actually look at Moonshine. I do love Snug. I have played Snug twice. I would play Snug again in an instant, um, so long as everyone else is well cast. Um, let's take a look at Starveling as Moonshine. So um, before Moonshine comes in, uh, there are, of course making, you know, they're they're making all these sorts of comments. In comes Starveling and says, This lanthorn doth the horned moon present. Demetrius said, He should have worn the horns on his head. Theseus says, He is no crescent, and his horns are invisible within the circumference. Poor Starveling, as Moonshine tries again. This lanthorn doth the horned moon present. Myself, the man in the moon, do seem to be. Theseus doesn't let him finish and says, this is the greatest error of all the rest. The man should be put into the lanthorn. How else is it the man in the moon? Demetrius says, he dares not come there for the candle, for you see it is already in snuff. Hippolyta, the queen says, I am a weary of this moon. Would he would change. Okay, I need you to remember that Moonshine is still on stage and has managed to get two lines of their speech out. And again, it's an address, right? It's not a soliloquy you can hear because they're narrating. Um, Theseus goes on. It appears by his small light of discretion that he is in the wane, but yet in courtesy, in all reason, we must stay the time. Then Lysander very kindly says, proceed, moon. Interesting. So in a metatheatrical play, yes, the characters within the world of the play are behaving under the same rules, or the play within a play, right? When you're in a play within a play, the same rules apply. But the difference is, because you're in this pocket dimension, in this kangaroo dimension, um, the characters in the grown-up kangaroo, the characters in World A, can actually still affect even this meta-theatrical play. The grown-up kangaroo can still stuff the pocket kangaroo world into their pocket and then they can also actively take out the pocket kangaroo world and let them continue on. This is going to be more important, uh, particularly in Love's Labor's Lost, which we will look at in a second. Okay, so Lysander takes out the pocket kangaroo and says, proceed, moon. And then Starveling as Moonshine abandons their speech because they know they're not going to be able to get their address out. And they say, all that I have to say is to tell you that the lanthorn is the moon, I the man in the moon, this thorn bush my thorn bush, and this dog my dog. And Demetrius answers Starveling back, saying, 
Why, all these should be in the Lanthorn, for all these are in the moon, but silence. Here comes Thisbe. Okay. Um, so, so you see that Starveling, when taken out uh, and told to be in their pocket dimension, since Starveling is a character, Starveling is a rude mechanical, just like Bottom was able to say, oh, no, I'm not going to stay in this pocket dimension. Um, Starveling as a character who can affect the play affects the play right back saying, basically, I'm not going to do my speech now. This is what it is, and can actually talk across to the characters. Whereas, again, if you remember the disassociative speech, um, if the character, like Lear, was fully in parallel world B, they would not hear or react to, like, the fool or Kent unless they were pulled back firmly into parallel world A, at which point parallel world B has never existed, has ceased to exist. Whereas in these metatheatrical um, moments, the pocket dimension, the kangaroo, the kangaroo, baby kangaroo keeps existing <laughs> in this case. Uh, they are already in the world and um, they will not be put down. <laughs> so there we are. Uh, I'm not going to go into the rest of this, although I absolutely adore it because, again, it's doing so much with verse. It's just funny. It's so good. Um, by the end, they're all like, no, 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 please don't give me an epilogue. Please, we don't want to see you dance. We don't want to see any of it. Um, and then the play ends and Puck comes out and gives another speech in trochaic tetrometer. All right, so what are things that we have learned from this section? We've learned a little bit about the Elizabethan stage and how, uh, I mean, even just living, even if you weren't doing a play within a play, the experience of going to play was kind of metatheatrical uh, and that the patrons, the people watching, would in fact <laughs> treat the poor actors Anyway, as their own personal baby kangaroos to be taken in and out of their pocket whensoever pleaseth them. Um, we also see that if you have a metatheatrical play, uh, if it is characters in, you know, in the metatheatrical play, and this is going to be important because if the people performing the metatheatrical play are not characters, they cannot affect the world of the play. Okay, we're going to hear that when we get to Hamlet. But if the performers of the metatheatrical play are characters in the grown-up kangaroo world A of the play, they can affect back and forth across this pocket dimension. All right, they can get out of character and come back into character. Um, they can skip across through those pocket dimensions. And uh, we also felt the difference between a narrative address and a sort of narrative slash choral speech and, in fact, a soliloquy, which in this case was an apostrophic soliloquy, uh, two apostrophic soliloquies, again, with the woman getting four lines next to bottom going on and on and on and on. Um and, and one of the things about a well-written soliloquy is that it has a point of view, basically, is that it has the character's feelings about whatever. 
All right, let's take another quick break and we'll come back and take a quick look at Love's Labor's Lost. See you in a second. Hello, friends. Are you one of the many playwrights who are among our listeners? If so, we are actively soliciting you to send us one of your soliloquies so that we can have it read out. If you've heard our season two, then you know that particularly for any playwright who has not had their work published, who is in the middle of still writing, um, the Velvet Gloves are going to be on. So you will get a little critique, uh, but you also get lots of love. So you can send those to Hamlet to Hamilton, all written out, all one word. So Hamlet, it's not the number two, it's T-O, Hamlet to Hamilton at gmail.com. We want to see your soliloquies. We're really excited to see them. And uh, we hope to do this towards the end, uh, or at least in the second or third module of this season, so that we can highlight you, our listeners. Send it to Hamlet to Hamilton at gmail.com. And we look forward to reading your brilliant work. Welcome back. All right. So we're going to be taking a look now at also Act 5, Scene 1 of Love's Labors Lost. I said that Midsummer's is one of Shakespeare's earlier plays, and it is, but it's right in that time when he's hitting his sweet spot, when he's kind of getting his stride, when he knows what's working on the stage. Um... It's before he really starts experimenting with form, but as we said, you can start seeing baby types of that. In Love's Labor's Lost, this is a considerably earlier play than Midsummer's. It's an interesting play. I know it is actually several people's favorite play, um, one of whom is Sybil Brune Moss from the Shakespeare Forum. And uh, I had the pleasure right before I left New York City of seeing Sybil perform the ending speech of the Queen uh, or Princess of France, rather. Beautiful stuff. And this play, it's so interesting because it's full of really some lovely pieces. Barone, for example, has just some great parts, and Barone is extremely a prototype for Benedict. So for anybody going out to audition for Benedict, well, the go-to is to just perform Barone from Love Lavers Lost. That said, as a director, I've seen many people make that substitution. So uh, use it or don't as pleaseth thee. If you've seen the uh, the filmed version from, gosh, 20, 25 years ago, something like that, again, late 90s, early 2000s, right when Kenneth Branagh was doing his slew of movie versions of Shakespeare plays, um, most notably his Henry V and his terrific Much Ado About Nothing, he did A Love's Labor's Lost, and he used music from the golden age of, of Broadway, actually a little bit earlier than the golden age, so Gershwin and all sorts of good stuff. Um, and he would use it in place of scenes, in place of certain speeches or soliloquies. And this really divided Shakespeareans. Um, I have a friend, Zelda Knapp, who is a theater critic in New York City, 
And she she hates, she loathes Love's Labor is Lost. I think in part because Zelda is also an expert on musical theater. I love it personally, but also like if you have people singing and dancing, I'm just going to enjoy that unless it is truly atrocious, such as the recent Dear Evan Hansen movie. Uh, even so, I went and I saw that in the theaters. I mean, I watched Glee longer than I should have or that I even wanted to just because I was desperate for singing and dancing. So for me, I loved that they were attempting to do some dance and some Gershwin and whatnot. But the reason why he did that is because this play, mm, a lot of the jokes don't land. Uh, essentially, this play is really great if you are an Elizabethan, if you are an early, uh, you know, or a rather late 1500s Elizabethan, um, earlier-ish in her reign or in the middle of her reign. Because um, it's full of in-jokes. It's full of stuff that only Elizabethans would be like, <laughs> at. and uh, so it's just less funny. It's a little bit less universal. The jokes don't really come over. It's also extremely wordy. It's not, sometimes he has flashes of great verse. Sometimes his verse is like, okay, it's here. I did see a fantastic version of it with uh, the New York City group Hamlet Isn't Dead a few years ago. Shout out to Hamlet Isn't Dead, still going strong even post-pandemic. What Hamlet Isn't Dead does, though, is they're kind of incredibly ir- irreverent to <laughs> all of Shakespeare. And they'll pull the piece apart and they add in a bunch of shtick and they do quite a bit of improv. Um, and again, for me, I don't feel particularly precious about this play. So I'm like, you know, bring in the Gershwin, bring in the improv. I don't feel that style works for all the plays they've touched upon. Uh, but for Love's Labor's Lost, it made it incredibly fun. Uh, they made some very big choices and and the play, I think, supports it well. Interestingly, so if you've only seen the Ken Branagh version of the of the musical, and if you didn't get it on DVD, which has the extras, they did film a good chunk, I think, of the play within a play. Not the whole of the play within a play, but they end up cutting the majority of it for the theatrical release, which honestly, I think, was the right choice. And instead, they they have in Nathan Lane singing and the entire casting, and there's no business like show business, uh, which I think honestly is a really good substitute for this play within a play. Unlike Midsummer Night's Dream, I think there's a lot of ways to go wrong with Love's Labor's Lost. Uh, I don't think it's as actor-proof. And the interesting thing about Pyramus and Thisbe is that, again, you can take out the majority of the interjections. Um, You can find a reason that Moonshine never finishes their speech, for example. Um, Or you could keep in two people and let them do just a few interjections. But you can largely do the play as a play in some ways. It's so ridiculous and fun that the audience will enjoy it anyway. Whereas what we're going to see here, because remember, these metatheatrical plays, one of the differences is that we have world A and then a pocket kangaroo dimension, world B, the metatheatrical play, the play within a play, but that it can, 
if these are characters, uh, it can influence certainly back into uh, into World A. Doesn't I mean? I guess it does influence the performance of World B, but it doesn't influence. This is kind of interesting. The characters of World A, if they're not in the play within a play, cannot influence the events of the meta theatrical play, or at least rarely do. Or if they're going to, rather like, for example, when the narrator is pulled into the second act of Into the Woods, they have to be pulled in and they have to be made into a character in this pocket dimension, in the play within a play. Okay. Uh, So we're going to see some play with that in this, in this play. Um, I'm going, I'm not going to do the whole thing because it, it's a lot and it's not really that funny. Um, But let us, we'll take a look briefly and then we'll go to the most important part at the end. Now, I'm sorry, I misspoke before. The play within a play is actually in Act 5, Scene 2, very far down, <laughs> starting around line 532-ish. In comes the clown, Costard, and he says, O oh Lord, sir, they would know whether the three worthies shall come in or no. Um, meaning, so basically they're going to show this play within a play, with the three worthies, a kind of a tableau, kind of a mask. Again, much more like uh, people who would just stand up and go, oh, this is what is happening. So this narrative, whatever role. They go back and forth and then decide to let them in. A note, just like before, the people who are going to put on the play within a play are themselves characters, not chorus members, but characters in the actual world of the play. It is interesting to see that both of the troops that put on the play within a play in Midsummer's and in Love's Labor's Lost are made up of the clowns, which probably tells you something about, well, um, about maybe how the actors felt they were being seen. All right. So Don Armado, who is a clown, who is a character, gives basically a program to the king. The king says, okay, so what this play is, here is like to be a good presence of worthies. He presents Hector of Troy, the Swain Pompey the Great, the parish curate Alexander, Armado's page Hercules, the pendant Judas Maccabees. And if these four worthies in their first show thrive, these four will change habits and present the other five. Meaning, they're going to show them the first couple of sort of people and tableau, people who are ooh, fantastical, not fantastical, but like considered great from Greek and Roman mythology. Um, and if the audience likes it, they've got more stuff to show. All right. They talk as similarly to the previous one. And in comes Costard, who is another clown dressed as Pompey. Costard starts. Uh, and I will, I'll do something similar as for, as we did for Midsummer's Costard. I Pompey am. Barone, you lie, you are not he. Costard. I Pompey am. Boyette, with leopard's head on knee. Barone, well settled, mocker, I must needs be friends with thee. 
Costard. I, Pompey and Poppy, surnamed the Big, Dumaine the Great. Costard. It, it is the Great, sir. Pompey, surnamed the Great, that often field with large... Oh, sorry, with targe and shield and make my foe to sweat, which probably rammed, rhymed back then. And traveling along this coast, I hear him come by chance and lay my arms before the legs of this sweet lass of France. And then gives weapons to the French princess and looks up at her and says, if your ladyship would say, thanks, Pompey, I had done. And the princess says, great, thanks, great Pompey. And Costard says, "'Tis not so much worth, but I hope was perfect. I made little fault in great." And Barone says, "'My hat to a halfpenny, Pompey proves the best worthy.'" So it's interesting. Um, in this, we see not so much a hostile crowd as we saw in Midsummer's, uh, But again, we are seeing the jumping in and out of characters. And we're seeing that Costard is able to affect the princess. The fool is able to, well, Costard's a clown, is able to affect the princess and saying, hey, I need you to do this for the play. And she does. So now she's, you know, she's brought in for a moment to the pocket dimension. Costard is able to to move her. Um, the actors, uh, or rather the characters in the world of play A are interrupting, are even rhyming with the, the people in the world of the play. And it's interesting. Again, we see is this... So the speech by Costard would have gone. I, Pompey, am Pompey surnamed the big, or rather it's Pompey surnamed the great, that often filled with targe and shield and make my foe to sweet. And traveling along this coast, I hear him come by chance and lay my arms before the legs of this sweet lass of France. Uh... It's probably more an address than it is a soliloquy because, again, Pompey expects to be overheard and is treating the princess as though she were a character in the play. Then in comes the curate Nathaniel performing Alexander. Let's see how this goes. Nathaniel. When in the world I lived, I was the world's commander. By east, west, north, and south, I spread my conquering night. My scutcheon plain declares that I am Alessander. Boyet says, your nose says no, you are not, for it stands too right. Barone says, your nose smells no in this most tender smelling night. You hear how there's a lot of rhyming just sort of randomly? Again, this is because it's an early play and all the plays were and kind of still were in rhyme when Shakespeare was writing. Again, blank verse was the cool new kid on the block. Uh, so you can hear how Shakespeare's kind of being pulled back into rhyming couplets. Kind of interesting. Anyway, the princess says, The conqueror is dismayed. Proceed, good Alexander. And Nathaniel, as Alexander goes, When in the world I lived, I was the world's commander. Boyd says, Most true, tis right. You were so, Alexander. Barone says, Pompey the Great. Costard says, Your servant and Costard. Barone says, Take away the conqueror. Take away Alexander. Costard goes into the play. Now, this is interesting. So again, we have pocket dimension. And like, like a kangaroo, we can hop in and out. And we're seeing since everyone is a character, everyone is able to change both world A and the pocket dimension. Really interesting, right? Okay. Uh, so this isn't just 
people heckling and stopping the play, they're actually saying, hey, you know, go in and change the world of the play, you. And now Costard, not performing as uh, as Pompey, but performing as as himself and having it jumps into the pocket dimension and says to poor <laughs> Alessander the Great, oh, sir, you have overthrown Alessander the Conqueror. You will be scraped out of the painted cloth for this. Your lion that holds his poleaxe sitting on a close stool will be given to Ajax. He will be ninth worthy, a conqueror and a fear to speak. Sorry, and a fear to speak. Run away for shame, Alessander. And Alessander leaves and doesn't finish his scene. And then Costard turns and says, There, and it shall please you, a foolish, mild man, an honest man, look you, and soon dashed. He is a marvelous good neighbor, Faith, and a very good bowler. But for Alessander, alas, you see how tis, a little or parted. But there are worthies a coming will speak their mind in some other sort. Okay. In comes uh, Holofernes at for Judas and the boy who's like the page or servant for Hercules. Um, Princess says to Costard, stand aside, good Pompey. Even though his real name is Costard, rather like if you were in rehearsal, you'd call someone by their stage name. So again, we're seeing this jumping in and out of the pocket dimension. In fact, what we just saw from Costard, which is in paragraph form, uh, he stands up and he kind of improvises a little bit uh, as Costard to perform, uh, to be like, oh, it's all good, and to, to cover for the moment. Um, is he in the play? Is he not? Uh, it's, it's, again, it's a pocket dimension. All right. Holofernes comes on performing as Judas. It says, Great Hercules is presented by this imp, meaning the boy, whose club killed Cerebus, that three-headed Canis. And when he was a babe, a child, a shrimp, thus he did strangle serpents in his manus. Quonium beseemeth in minority, ergo, I come with this apology. And then looks at the boy and says, keep some state in thy exit and vanish. Okay, so we're seeing people come in and out of character. Um... Great Her- Hercules is presented by the simp. That is definitely narrative, right? That is definitely narrative because Judas isn't even talking about themselves. They're narrating who the other person is. Then Holofernes tries to do their speech. We do the same thing of people talking over it. And um, Holofernes actually tries to talk back. Um, in fact, saying, you have put me out of countenance. And Barone saying, false, we've given thee faces. And Holofernes says, but you've outfaced them all. Uh, and so it's interesting. They're yelling back and forth, but they're yelling back and forth as, as themselves, as characters in world A. They can't get back into the pocket dimension. Uh, then we have Hector come in, played by Armado. And again, we have the same joke. This is this is such early Shakespeare that he's repeating himself. Again, listen to my unhinged rant on Richard III. Uh, available at patreon.com backslash Hamlet to Hamilton. Uh, so it's the same trick. They don't let him finish. People are yelling back and forth. Uh, they're talking to the audience and asking the audience to basically help out and join uh, they're calling in other characters to get rid of people, so on and so forth. However, 
The reason why I wanted to cover this play is because around line 743, somewhere in there, uh, there's a really interesting twist, which again is going to sort of ricochet into Hamlet, where the two worlds are going to come crashing together. So there again, they're making fun of Armado, who is playing Hector, and Armado is trying to do his speech again of this Hector far surmounted Hannibal. This party is gone. And then Costard, who, uh, remember, was also in the play, says, fellow Hector, she is gone. She is two months on her way. Armado says, what meanest thou? Costard says, faith. Unless you play the honest Trojan, the poor wench is cast away. She's quick. The child brags in her belly already. Tis yours. Our motto is like, dost thou infamatize me among potentates? Thou shalt die. A.K.A. Costard is saying that the woman that our motto loves is Preggers. So Costard is actually stopping the play within a play because they're all characters. They have activity. And he is accusing Armado of knocking up this poor woman called Jacquinetta, who is technically a character in the play, but again, is probably more choral because what agency does she have? And Costard says, then shall Hector be whipped for Jacquinetta that is quick by him and hanged for Pompey that is dead by him. Um, they go on, they fight, and then it doesn't matter because in comes the messenger with the news that the king of France is dead and the whole play comes to a screeching halt and no one knows whether there is a Love's Labors 1, a.k.a. a part two of this play. Some people have written the sequel. Uh, that's a discussion for another day. But the thing that I want to show you with this is a little bit less um, about the the metatheatrical soliloquy, since all of these really are addresses, um, but much more about how with the metatheatrical, you can really play with character as to who is saying what to whom, whether we're in the pocket dimension, whether we're not. If characters are in the metatheatrical play, they can jump in and out. But even as we saw before, they can draw in characters to their world. And so if you are, I know some of you, I think are actually writing soliloquies for plays within plays. I just want you to know that this, in, this is an option for you. Uh, and that you can, again, use all the tools of the trade, all the tools of the tool boudoir. You can use soliloquy, you can use speech, you can use address, you can use monologue, you can use different styles, you can use different formatting. And with the play within a play, if you are dealing with characters who are both acting metatheatrically and characters who are watching metatheatrically, they can influence each other. Which brings us to, back to, let's start at the very beginning. Um, <laughs> stand in the place where you live. Let's go back to good old Hamlet. Because Hamlet, in fact, does have a soliloquy in its play within a play. And it does, in fact, very much affect the world of the play. But how? All right. See you on the other side of this very short break. Are you a verse playwright? Are you, in fact, as well, a playwright historically excluded 
from Western art? Are you a playwright of color or a playwright that comes from a different culture other than European? Well, Turn to Flesh Productions, our parent company, is looking for scripts written in heightened text, written in verse, and particularly written for, by, and with people who are historically excluded from classical Western art. If you are interested in learning more, you can go to turntoflesh.org or you can email the artistic director, Chris Rivera, at turntoflesh at gmail.com. We cannot guarantee that all scripts will receive development, but it's okay for you to certainly ping us as well on Twitter at Turn to Flesh or on Facebook at Turn to Flesh Productions and let us know that you're around, that maybe you want to come to one of our Zoom developmental sessions and perhaps even have one of your plays get a little bit of development. That's turntoflesh.org or email turntoflesh at gmail.com. All right. It is coming full circle, looking back at Hamlet, taking a look at The Mousetrap, the play within a play of Hamlet Act 3, Scene 2, which begins with Hamlet's advice to the players. It's interesting, Hamlet has, as many of his speeches are, a speech in paragraph form that begins, Speak the speech I pray you as I pronounce it to you, trippingly on the tongue, which is, of course, Hamlet's advice to the actors. Uh, This is a monologue. He is speaking a speech of length, but intends to be heard by the other actors, in this case, on the stage, by anyone who's around. Uh, yes, the actors in this case, the, the player, king, etc., are behaving as chorus, which is to say they're in the world of the play. They're not actively affecting the world of the play, unlike how we heard Costard actively affecting the world of the play, or we heard Bottom actively affecting the world of the play, both inside and outside the pocket kangaroo dimension. This is Hamlet just talking, just talking and talking and talking. But it is a monologue, not an address so much. It's not narration because Hamlet is absolutely, he is in his POV. This is what he thinks. This is what he feels. It is very particular to Hamlet. And I do think the more I think about this, that's what sets a good, well, any good writing apart. The more particular you can be with a character, uh, the better the character is. Therefore, the more particular you could be with a character's soliloquy where they may not be holding back about how they feel about something. For example, I mean, Iago just saying, I hate the more, or Edmund talking about just how he feels about being a bastard, they can let loose. Uh, They can tell us truths that Maybe they're just telling themselves for the first time. They definitely can be in their own point of view. But in this way, it's not particularly different from how they might be with someone else on stage. Uh, The difference is, I guess, for soliloquy is if they feel isolated, if they feel that no one is hearing them, if they're in absolutely private thought, what does your character say? 
so this is not Hamlet in private thought, although it is definitely from his point of view. We have to go down quite a bit to get to the play within a play. We see as well, of course, there is a little prologue. Uh, we have the characters. We have the king, the queen, Ophelia, Polonius, Rosicrats, Guildenstart, and Hamlet definitely are watching this. Some are more characters and have effect on the play. Some, like Ophelia and in some ways the queen, uh, Gertrude, are being shoved into more Coralie type ro roles. The prologue comes on and says, For us and for our tragedy, here stooping to your clemency, we beg your hearing patiently. Once again, you hear it's not in pentameter. You actually hear it's not necessarily in iams. I felt more like a rolling down and rolling down. Uh, it's It uses rhyme. So Shakespeare, again, is touching on that earlier age, uh, not necessarily for comic effect, uh, but for for the audience to really sort of give them an audible clue that this is, in fact, a play within a play, because there is very little rhyming in Hamlet. Do you remember Hamlet is a middle, not quite late, but like towards the end of his middle period, um, which is why he's really hit his stride. When we get into the play within a play, though, and I'm not going to read the whole first section because it's actually a dialogue. It's long speeches, long monologues of the player king to the player queen. But there is, in fact, the whole thing is in rhyming couplets, which, again, uh, speaks to an earlier age. It looks like it's also in tetrameter rather than pentameter. Okay. And the 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 people who are watching the play wait until there are appropriate moments to interrupt the play and to talk to each other. They are not, uh, they're not interrupted. So it's really cool to see that Shakespeare's not pulling his same trick, his same joke. He is using this play within a play to up the tension. All right. But then we do actually have a soliloquy. And it's, in comes Lucianus. Um, it's, it's a double, well, not quite a double soliloquy, but it's a soliloquy that could be overheard, but isn't. Um, so we might consider it a cut soliloquy, uh, an edited soliloquy. We haven't really entirely named this. Uh, someone is sleeping, so we're going to pretend that, <laughs> that no one can overhear this guy talking out loud soliloquy. But Lucianus, who is nephew to the king in the play within a play, uh, and the king is sleeping and in comes Lucianus with a vial of poison and he says, Thoughts black, hands apt, drugs fit and time agreeing, confederate season, else no creature seeing. Thou mixture rank of midnight weeds collected, with Hecate's ban thrice blasted, thrice infected. Thy natural magic and dire property on wholesome life usurp immediately. And pours poison in the uh, player king's ear. Now, why is this not necessarily narration? Well, I think because what we see is, rather like Macbeth, it is an apostrophic soliloquy. And you get this sense, too, of Lucianus, like, oh, by the way, Hamlet was probably written before Macbeth, which is kind of interesting. Um, you, get, you get this sense that 
that Luciana still has a point of view. And you get that from the adjectives he uses. Whereas instead of saying, I am Pompey the Great, and da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da, he's saying, he begins with thoughts black. So we know we're in a soliloquy. Even though this is very short, quote-unquote, speech of length, a short soliloquy, thoughts black, hands apt, drugs fit and time agreeing, Confederate season, else no creature seeing. So we know that this character is isolated. Remember that Hamlet's the one where he keeps sending people away to soliloquize? Anyway, else no creature seeing, a.k.a. I don't intend to be overheard or seen by any other character within the world of the play within a play. With Hecate's ban thrice blasted, thrice infected, thy natural magic, so he's apostrophizing the poison, thy natural magic, a dire property on wholesome life, usurp immediately. And that word usurp, again, sort of brings it back to being a soliloquy. That That's what Lucianus intends to do. So this is, um, it's being used for a villain. It's not really a villain speech. It is an apostrophic speech. He is behaving like Macbeth with a dagger, basically. Um, interesting, though, he's also doing a soliloquy rather like Bottom as Pyramus. Oh, wall, oh, wall, oh, sweet and lovely wall. So an apostrophic soliloquy. Hamlet comes in and, again, speaking in paragraph form, says he poisons him in the garden for his estate. So we do have the trick of a character from World A no, no, Hamlet doesn't jump into the pocket dimension, but he's able to affect and stop the pocket dimension and says, he poisons him in the garden for his estate. His name's Gonzago. The story is extant and written in very choice Italian. You shall see anon how the murderer gets the love of Gonzago's wife. So Hamlet is himself bridging these two worlds, in some ways behaving like a prologue, but working to affect uh, world A. And Ophelia says, the king rises. Hamlet shouts, what, frighted with false fire? The queen says, how fares my lord? Polonius says, give o'er the play. The king says, give me some light away. Polonius says, lights, lights, lights. Okay. And if you remember last last episode, I talked about bullet formatting and it goes into, it goes from rhyming couplets in verse into paragraph form into bullets. The king rises. What? Fright with false fire? How fares my lord? Give o'er the play. Give me some light away. Lights, lights, lights. Right? Where it's this sort of like, again, the pointillism feel. Okay. So it's very cool in this section because we get really close together three very different musical sounds. Ah, and then it actually goes in and Hamlet sings a song <laughs> immediately after in strophic verse, in rhyming stroke of verse, where he goes... Why let the struck and deer go weep the heart ungalled play? For some much watch and some must sleep, thus runs the world away. And then goes back into paragraph, Would not this, sir, and a forest of feathers, if the rest of my fortune turned Turk with me, with two provincial roses on my raised shoes, get me a fellowship in a cry of players? And we keep changing melody because we keep changing formatting. Go back to redefining verse drama. Go back to re-redefining verse drama. Change of formatting, friends, is a great way to keep tension and feeling and ouvriel up. We keep changing the ouvriel just by changing the formatting. God, I love Hamlet. Just love it. Oh, it's so good. All right. Anyway, 
So that's an itty bitty soliloquy. I am going to take a second. We're going to jump back earlier in Hamlet to the previous act where we first meet the players. And let's take sort of a little pop quiz and figure out what to do with the long speeches that the player king and even Hamlet deliver in the previous scene. All right, let me grab it on my uh, on my laptop since I don't have my collected works. One second. All right, and we are in act two, scene two, another never-ending scene with a ton of things that happen in it. Um, Rosencrantz, Guildenstern have just come in. Polonius has come in. The players have come in. And, <laughs> and Hamlet says, come, give us a taste of your quality. Come, a passionate speech. This, by the way, is all in paragraph form, as a lot of Hamlet is. And uh, it's kind of neat. This is different, right? In every other version of these play within a plays for Shakespeare, people are going, oh, no. Uh, but so the, the player king says, what speech, my good lord? And Hamlet says, I heard thee speak me a speech once, but it was never acted, or if it was, not above once. For the play, I remember, pleased not the million. Twas caviar to the general. But it was, as I received it, and others whose judgments in such matters cried in the top of mine, an excellent play, well digested in the scenes, set down with as much modesty as cunning. I remember, one said there were no salads in the lines to make the matter savory, nor no matter in the phrase that might indict the author of affection, but called it an honest method, as wholesome as sweet, and by very much more handsome than fine. Uh, one speech in it I chiefly loved. "'Twas Aeneas's tale to Dido, and thereabout of it, especially when he speaks of Priam's slaughter. If it live in your memory, begin at this line. Oh, let me see. Let me see. The rugged Pyramus, like the Hyrcanian beast, tis not so, it begins with Pyrrhus. The rugged Pyrrhus, he whose sable arms, black as his purpose, did the knight resemble." When he laid couched in the ominous horse, hath now this dread and black complexion smeared with heraldry more dismal, head to foot now is he total jewels, horridly tricked with blood of fathers, mothers, daughters, sons, baked and empasted with the parching streets that lend a tyrannous and a damned light to their lord's murder, roasted in wrath and fire, and thus orsized with coagulate gore, with eyes like carbuncles that hellish purest old grandsire Priam seeks. Uh, so proceed you. <laughs> okay. So in some ways, it behaves like a drift. In this case, is it a soliloquy? I would say it's a drift speech, right? Or a drift monologue or a drift narration. This isn't Shakespeare's, I'm oh, sorry, this isn't Hamlet's point of view. And while he's saying this is Aeneas's tale to Dido, it doesn't feel particularly like Aeneas's point of view. Aeneas doesn't seem to have a personal stake, doesn't, doesn't feel like this is how I felt about Pyrrhus. This is how I felt about um, seeing Priam. Uh, whereas you would think that Aeneas would absolutely have very firm feelings about all of this. Uh, but instead, he's just narrating what happens. But it's neat. So you can do a drift narration for a character. And we 
definitely felt this slip into the pocket dimension, right? That Hamlet slipped into a play within a play. Just a little background on this. Uh, I firmly believe, and, and I believe this may be a couple other people's theory, I firmly believe that Shakespeare had written Troilus and Cressida. And uh, we know that play did not go well. I think I may have mentioned I've been in it twice and I've seen it, I think, only once. And every time I'm like, this place stinks. This place just so bad. What are you doing, Shakespeare? Uh, and, and it feels to me that uh, Shakespeare was probably writing uh, a second part to Troilus and Cressida because Troilus and Cressida ends on a cliffhanger. It ends so poorly. It, it seems to me the only way to continue it would be to have a part two and maybe a part three. So I really think, and and this thought was floated actually um, by an actor with whom I've worked in in New York City, very talented. Um, they always felt that that there ought to have been a part two, that there probably was a part two. And so it seems to me that Shakespeare was working on it and Charles and Cressida probably like closed in a night. And I think he was really butthurt by this. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so here he is. He's, and so he's like, well, I've got these extra speeches. It's going to go in my latest revision of Hamlet, man. That's just what's going to happen. <laughs> All right. And then the first player uh, takes up the, the speech because Hamlet has said, oh, please speak. So again, we get that sense of uh, invitation to hop into the pocket dimension, the kangaroo dimension. And the player, I'll just read a little bit of this. The player continues, anon he finds him striking too short of the Greeks. His antique sword, rebellious to his arm, lies where it falls, repugnant to command. Unequal matched, Pyrrhus at Priam drives, in rage strikes wide. But with the whiff and wind of his fell sword, the unnerved father falls. Then senseless Ilium, seeming to feel this blow, with flaming top stoops to his base, and with a hideous crash takes prisoner Pyrrhus's ear, for lo, his sword, which was declining on the milky head of Reverend Priam, seemed in the air to stick. And so, as a painted tyrant Pyrrhus stood, and, like a neutral to his will and matter, did nothing. Okay, so we're still storytelling. If this is Dido, or sorry, if this is Aeneas talking to Dio, there's no, like, we were just talking about how good writing personalizes. Good writing is from a point of view. I mean, like, I should say, good writing, if you're doing a plot and character first show, is to make sure the character has a point of view. If you're doing just a vibes-based play, then it might be more about narration. If you're doing a thematic-based play, then it might be more about narration, right? But Shakespeare tends to write character and plot first plays. And um, I think that's part of where he got in trouble with Troilus and Cressida. Also, it's a mess. Um, but the other thing that is really interesting here, right, is that this is in blank verse, this, so this is going in and out of paragraph form and blank verse. Uh, whereas interestingly, uh, it was still in verse format for Midsummer's and for Love's Livers Lost if there were interjections. Uh, so here Shakespeare is feeling much more comfortable using paragraph form. 
But as you notice with the verse, it's blank verse. It is a beautiful verse. It's also in pentameter. So that's what makes me think that this probably was something that Shakespeare was working on and then like kind of stuck in here. And having directed Hamlet, this is a difficult thing because it's so well known that it's not one of the pieces you can cut. And we need to set up that there's going to be a play within a play. So you need at least some of it, right? Um, And also then Hamlet goes and references it, particularly the second half where, where we talk about how Hecuba felt. It's crucial, in fact, to Hamlet's like rest of the play is he saw this play. He's very moved because he saw the player King appeared moved by the death, uh, by Hecuba's feeling about the death of Priam. And he says, as we've talked about before, you know, what's he to Hecuba or Hecuba to him that he should mourn her. I have to look at it again. Sorry. I don't have it memorized. Um, so you've, you've got to include it, but what is it doing? It's just telling a story. So the reason why I stopped it did nothing is because, for example, well, A, it is did nothing. It's just diameter. So we've got a bunch of white space. Um, we're going to be talking in the future about uh, ribbons or twisting uh, in writing a soliloquy. I'm going to leave that for right now, but basically it's it's a way to use short lines in a soliloquy to sort of up the ouvriel of a soliloquy. So we have did nothing. And I know for myself, because I was very much a purist and was like, if there is white space in Shakespeare, it must always be played. It must always be musical. So we took several beats, but also... I was looking for anything to affect Hamlet. Since this is behaving extremely as a narrative or as a choral piece, and matter of fact, it feels extremely choral because it's just describing things. It's given by a character who's behaving in a choral function, aka useful to the main characters, but not having any active effect on the world. Therefore, the activity has to still remain with Hamlet. He commissioned them to speak this particular speech, why it must be something that he desires to hear. And that part, so as a painted tyrant, Pyrrhus stood and like a neutral to his will and matter, did nothing. Space, space, space. To me, it felt like important for the player king to look at Hamlet and deliver that do nothing or did nothing. Um, so again, the player king to really let him be choral, where he's not affecting the world, as it were, but what we're seeing is that our main character, the sort of character of characters, Hamlet, is is being affected because he wanted to be affected. He sort of energized the chorus and and chose what it is and and sort of imbued them. Uh, for a moment in order to affect himself, which is really interesting. So is this a soliloquy? Is this? No, no, because it says up top that Aeneas and 
uh, is speaking to Dido, is storytelling, is narrating, is behaving in a choral function. The player king doesn't even have a first name. So the player king is extremely choral, right? Super choral. Uh, is not sitting there going, ooh, actually, let me tell you this one because it's going to affect you even more. Player King doesn't even do the custard or bottom thing of like slipping out of character and talking back to Hamlet. No, absolutely just at Hamlet's use. But what we have is a long speech of length that is activated by the main character for and and then perhaps best used for the main character to reflect or to be sort of motivated to continue on. And it's this section that motivates Hamlet to do the mousetrap, which is where he catches the king, which then sets into motion a bunch of murder, which is what we're really here for. <laughs> if it's a Shakespeare play, two ways to get off, marriage or murder. All right. So those are three metatheatrical uses, sometimes soliloquy, but also good examples of addresses, of choral odes, of narration, of storytelling, looking at the difference between characters and choruses and narrators and who can affect the world of the play. And as well, reminding you that if it's if you're having a character speak, not just a chorus member, but a character, they really need, or they optimally need, particularly if you're doing plot and character first plays, sort of your typical Western play, let's put it that way, uh, they need to have a really distinctive point of view. They need to be speaking this because they are the ones who need to speak this not because they're around and they're handy or maybe they haven't talked for a while. There's a play that I just saw in London, actually, where people narrated the whole play. Um, and many times, throughout the majority of the play, at least 50% of it, I kept thinking, why is this character saying this part of the story? Like, it feels like this character is saying this part of the story because they haven't talked in a while, and the playwright feels bad or the playwright is like, mm, I should break it up so just my main character isn't saying everything. It, it wasn't always specific. And therefore, at least for me, all this, it, it became sort of too Brechtian. Um, the alienation just became random as opposed to specific. Uh, and I do think, I think specificity, I think specificity is really key. So as you're looking at your own soliloquies, as we're finishing up this module, as you're thinking about, ooh, does my character do cut soliloquies, classic soliloquies, drift soliloquies, disassociative soliloquies, apostrophic soliloquies, villain soliloquies, or metatheatrical soliloquies, um, as, as you're looking at your own play, do not lose the specificity for your character think about the adjectives that are being used. Would your character say that? We're going to talk about this more in future modules. Uh, I think this season three on soliloquy is going to go for uh, a bit because I think there's a lot we can find. But this does finish up 
our uh, <laughs> our Shakespeare segment. And it was a lot of fun to go back. We haven't really looked at Shakespeare a lot because it's uh, kind of important to, to kill your parents a little bit <laughs> when you're trying to, you know, break out. Anyway, but Shakespeare really uh, does know what he's doing, and he gave us a lot of different types of soliloquies. So again, while we always think of the classic soliloquy of Hamlet with a skull all dressed in black and going, ah, oh, these are my feelings, uh, there are different ways to show that. There are lots of different ways to show that, and you have a lot of decisions to make. And that's exciting. I am excited to see what you come up with. So this is my challenge to you. Take a character that you want to work on, whether it's someone you've already written for or completely random, you could just do it as like an exercise. And I want you to write them a soliloquy. And I want you to think about a couple things. One, think about the character. What do they need to talk about? Two, choose a style. Are they speaking in poetry? Are they speaking in prose? Are they speaking in rhetoric? Are they speaking with nonsense words? What sort of mode of speech do you want to use? Next, think about formatting. Is this sort of the uh, paragraph form, which is very loose? It's not particularly... um, you're just leaving it up to the actor. Are you doing it in verse form? If so, are you doing it in eidetic stichic verse, in protean stichic verse? Are you doing it in strophes? Are you doing it atotosic? Are you doing it morphic? Listen to redefining verse drama for that. Are you doing it in bullet, uh, where it's sort of pointillism thoughts? Listen to the previous episode for that. Are you doing it in song? Are they going to sing? Are you going to, uh, are you going to sort of play with tempo by having them go in and out of different styles? And, and therefore go back when you're making these choices about style and formatting, go back to the character and to the specificity of the character. What does the character need at any given time? What are they feeling? That should indicate possibly a tempo change, which might meet a formatting change. How do they feel about it? Are they speaking very plainly? Are they speaking if this, then that, sort of rhetorically? Are they getting flowery? Uh, Does that cover something up or does that reveal something, right? Um, Do they suddenly burst into song in the middle of it? Do they suddenly burst into silence? Don't forget about silence, Is there a place where they cut off their own line, where we're going to use crossed out lines? Okay. Again, get specific. Is there a place we're going to put on stage direction? And that's part of their soliloquy is some movement. Um, I'm thinking of how, is it Trigorin, I think, in The Seagull? No. Yes. Anyway. No, Constantine. Constantine in The Seagull. And how there's that bit, it's actually in dialogue, but how there's a bit where he's talking about his mom and he's pulling a flower apart with she loves me, she loves me not. Um, And so there's movement there, right? Stage direction. So think about your character. 
Think about what they're going to be talking about, what they're going to reveal about themselves, what they would say if they felt isolated and they weren't going to be overheard by any other character. What would they say? And then does that invite what sort of style of language or of movement or of silence or of singing? What formatting does that encourage? And then if you want to take it one step further, start thinking about, again, what sort of adjectives would they use? Get specific with your adjectives. What sort of verbs would they use? Would they use someone else's name? Uh, Would they ever talk about themselves? Would they use the would I? Would they ask questions of the audience? Would they ignore the audience? Where is their focus, right? Act it out for yourself. And in this way, it may help you to also choose among, is this a classic soliloquy? Is this direct address or are they thinking about something else? Is this a drift soliloquy, a cut soliloquy? Um, Again, are they in a disassociative soliloquy? Is this a play within a play? Are they aware that they are enacting a role? Um, Is this an apostrophic soliloquy? Are they having an argument with someone who isn't there, sort of Gollum style, right? Um, Think about these things, even just outline them, even just make random choices, just throw darts or like make a list and go across and just check one off and try out writing a soliloquy that way and see what you think. Just practice. You don't ever have to show anyone any of this, right? It's the same as practice when you're developing a character and you're walking around the room and you're saying, "Mm, does this character walk fast or slow? Does this character walk heavy or light? Does this character walk in straight lines or in curved lines, right? And you try it all out and you're not making mistakes. You're just practicing. So the same thing, that's my challenge to you. Take all these different things that we've learned. Um, If you're doing a soliloquy, it has to be a character who can change things or who's making decisions, right? I mean, but if you want, you could practice doing a narration. You could practice doing a choral piece. You can practice that. Why not? But take all these choices, write them down, go across, go tick, 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 tick. These are the things I'm going to try out and then practice that and maybe do six lines and see what you think. And then, you know, like half an inch if you're doing paragraph form. And if you don't like it, then go change one of the ticks, try something else, see what happens. And uh, then ping us. You can email us at hamlettohamilton at gmail.com, all written out, or tag us on uh, Twitter, Hamlet number two, Hamilton. And, uh, and, and we want to see what you're doing. All right. We'll see maybe about making up a list for you. But if one of our beautiful listeners wants to make it up since life is kind of crazy uh, for your good servants here, we'd appreciate it. And till next time, we've finished module one. See you next time for module two as we continue talking soliloquy. Bye. Hamlet to Hamilton Exploring Verse Drama is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. Special thanks to Stars and Scansion patrons, Ben Claude, Madeline Farley, and Jasmine Nayak. 
If you'd like to become our patron and get different goodies, you can join us over on patreon.com slash Hamlet to Hamilton. Hamlet to Hamilton is hosted by Emily C.A. Snyder with audio engineering and sound design by Colin Kavarik. This podcast is part of the Turn to Flesh Productions audio network. You can learn more by going to hamlettohamilton.com or turntoflesh.org. If you liked this episode, please like, share, comment, subscribe. You know what to do. You can follow us on Twitter at Hamlet2Hamilton with the numeral 2 in between, or use the hashtag HamletToHamilton or H2H with the numeral 2. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks' time as we continue exploring verse drama. <laughs>